Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Megan Garn, and I'm the Director of Operations with Common Sense Institute. If you've been enjoying this content, I encourage you to subscribe to our e-newsletter, the Common Sense Digest, so you can stay up to date with important news and policy happenings. We feature our research, upcoming events, job openings, and more. You can subscribe at www.commonsenseinstitute.co.org. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. We now join part two of our podcast series about housing prices, energy codes, and electrification with our host, Chairman Earl Wright, and our guests, Evelyn Lim, Tim Walsh, and Ted Lighty. All I am saying is that this is something that we should be very cautious about, that the energy code board that was put in to legislation should be looking at is how are we going to actually make an impact that does not increase the costs on the consumer, the home buyer. This ends up being very unsettling to me. I I don't know that I'm going to be any more settled as we get through with this. Um, <laughs> your report looked at a couple of estimates of electrifying an entire state. These are large numbers, $59.1 billion to $68.4 billion. That's twice our state budget in Colorado. Uh, the legislation uh, focuses on new buildings. What do you think of the retrofitting? Uh, you mentioned that. Kent, how, how in the world do we afford it? Well, that's one of the questions. The other question is how do we even do this? Because it's not just a matter of replacing appliances with you know, electric appliances, sometimes there you need to actually change structurally. You have to change your panel. You know, your panel. And so there's a lot that needs to be done in order to retrofit. I think, you know, the, the numbers we put in there, uh, Black Hills Energy actually did an analysis of Rocky Ford, Colorado, and what it would cost. So what Common Sense Institute, Institute did was basically extrapolate those numbers, which is, you know, where we got the $59 billion to 68 billion for residential. If you look at a uh, commercial side, it adds another almost 18 billion to that. So that would be 71 billion statewide. That's the analysis that we did at Common Sense. There's other analyses out there. One that did it for all the states looked at Colorado and said it would be 488 billion to electrify the built environment. And so when you have these huge... 15 years of our, of our budget? Right. So that's the state budget I'm referring it, to. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I would say, you know, people will say, oh, well, this is just, again, for new builds. But Denver is looking at retrofitting and how they, would, how they would do that. And so I think, you know, people really need to be aware that this is going on before we get too far down the road of, you know, we've already built this infrastructure that, you know, the utility providers are actually going to charge back to the ratepayers. This is something that we need to think about critically as residents in Colorado. Tim, you're out there hammering nails, making certain that uh, good structures are put up. Let me reverse this for a second. Let's pretend you're working on older homes and commercial sites, and you've got to make these changes. Take us through, if you would, what it would require to totally electrify an older house and commercial property. What are you really, you're just not talking about putting in a new uh, AC adapter or DC, you know, plugs. What are you talking about? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Earl, and and I do have experience with older homes because when I started the company, we did a bunch of fix and flips, and uh, um, so I I know exactly how some of these older homes are are wired. Evelyn mentioned the panel size. Most of these older homes have a hundred amp panel, you know, and if you're talking about putting a car charger in, that's fifty amps. That's half your panel right there for your for your electric car charger. And let's remember who these older homes are providing housing for our lower and middle income families here in Colorado. So they're the ones we're talking about being most disproportionately hurt and they don't have the spare cash. They're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, they're trying to climb that economic ladder and we're stripping the ladder away from them by, by doing things like this. Evelyn also mentioned Denver, you know, and they're throwing incentives out there, but to do a heat pump might be $7,500 just to buy the equipment. And Denver, I think, is offering something like $1,500 to offset that cost. But where's the other 6000 come from, Earl? That's that's what I want to know. And, and you know, they, they don't have the credit to go borrow money to implement it. And then, you know, it's just not putting that piece of equipment in. It's retrofitting the ductwork in the house and then the added utility costs. So... Heating your water with gas is the most efficient way to heat water. It's dense versus heating it with electricity, you know, burning coal, burning uh, gas in in Pueblo and getting electricity up here. Our new, you know, boilers now are 98% efficient. And I think there's technology that's out there that makes natural gas boilers. I think we should be pushing towards natural gas being a clean energy source. And there's technologies where we can actually produce that and basically have zero emissions out of our pipe coming out of our house. Well, I just wanted to add, because this is what we see Europe doing, essentially recasting natural gas as a, as a clean energy source because they're in such dire straits um, in terms of their electricity. And, and remember, Earl, the goal here really is to ban natural gas in Colorado. I mean, that needs to be clearly stated. That is the the goal of this. Well, you know, this is uh, not quite of the uplifting conversation I'd hope to have, and I'm probably not going to help it out much here, but, uh, you know, Ted, you mentioned uh, one of the L's being labor force, and uh, Tim, you've got people out on sites all the time. Ted, you also, what about the labor shortage uh, with regards to skilled uh, labor and housing development and what about having a workforce that can really do the work that we're talking about do we have the the electricians do we have all the other skilled labor i'm going to open that up to both of you so i'll 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 start with it but yeah tim's answer is probably going to be a lot more appropriate because he's the practitioner right that's out there having to source the labor but some just some figures here by 2025 so we're three years away less than three years away when this, and then when this bill really starts to kick in, actually kicks in, I think a year later, we're expected to be 96,000 workers short. So that's all skilled labor. By when? By 2025, (laughs) 96,000 workers short, right? So when the the study, the proponents use to try to, you know, to show that these codes won't increase costs, I don't think they take into account the skilled worker shortage, right? I'd love to know Tim's answer to this, but when I talk to my builders, and they talked about, you know, the difference in the costs, right, or the energy savings. It's not looking at a cut sheet and saying, well, this heat pump costs this and this furnace costs that. And there's your difference. No, no, no. You have to have skilled labor that knows how to work with that new material and install it correctly. 
So when you talk to our builders, they'll say, I can go do that, but there's fewer people that have that knowledge. And the ones that even do have that knowledge, that skill set, if they have to work on my home that is going to be net zero or, or very energy efficient, they can probably do one or two of my homes in a day. They can go work for the other guy that's building to the lower co- code and get probably five or six homes done in a day. You tell me which one you want to be paid for, two to three, five to six. So that's something that we need to, you know, I, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I do want to hear Tim. I think at the heart of, of the study that Evelyn produced, right, it, we're really talking about, and it's something that I imparted to the legislature during the, the debate. It's what we're talking about is when public policy and, and code changes outpace technological feasibility, economies of scale, and customer demand, it typically results in greater cost, which then just creates another impediment to housing affordability or attainable housing or, or however you want to phrase that. You know, and you put a disproportionate effect on when we talk about electrification, beneficial electrification, outlaw and gas, all you really do is you create haves and have-nots and you there are going to be a, a, a too big of a share of, of people that are going to be stuck in older homes that cannot be retrofitted because they they can't pay for it to be retrofitted. And then they're going to be stuck paying a disproportionate share of the existing gas infrastructure because the rest of us are moving off that can afford it are moving off to electric electricity. But you can't just up and say gas is gone, right? Gas is going to be with us for many, many years. But what we have here, what we're talking about today is really putting the cart before the horse and putting public policy out in front it's outpacing what we can do technologically, what the market is demanding, and what the economies of scale say we can actually produce. I'd love to have you follow up on that. Y- yeah, you know, first, Ted, that was great. That's one of the concerns I have, too, not talking about labor, but just actually talking about our older housing stock. Uh, we've seen it in municipalities where they've put up building codes like Boulder, where if you do a renovation, large-scale renovation of even a, like a five-unit uh, development, then you have to put one of those units in as a deed restricted, income restricted unit. Same thing is going to happen with this new code if we implement it on older homes. People simply aren't going to upgrade their homes. I mean, they're going to they're going to figure out how to keep their furnace going as long as possible, even when it probably becomes unsafe, or there'll be a black market of buying gas water heaters, you know, it, it's going to happen. I mean, that's what happens in the free market. And, you know, those houses simply aren't going to convert and they're just going to stay as old housing stock. But back to the labor question, you know, there is one bright light here because I think we need to attract more young workforce into the, the labor pool. And if we can make jobs sexy and say they're doing green energy work, maybe that will attract some people who care about the environment. We can say, okay, if you really care, Get a job and learn make how. Make a difference. Yeah, make a difference. Learn, learn to be a tradesperson where you could be installing some of these new, new. And I think that we we could use it to our benefit, but we still have to close this huge labor shortage gap, and that's not going to happen overnight. And these are, you know, these these are a little more technical. These aren't sort of labor jobs. I mean, these are skilled electricians that need to be implementing this. And then the last point, you know, we have done some projects with heat pumps, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, They're a little different. They're VRF, but same principle. They're complex systems. And these aren't just your your heating and plumbing guys uh, that you call, 
you know, to come over and repair your furnace. These are technical pieces of equipment. And as Ted alluded to, I I know of only two contractors in Colorado that I think are really qualified to install those systems. So, and Ted brought this up, you know, when we're building 45,000 homes with heat pumps in them, where where is the technical skill going to come from to install that equipment? All I can say is, wow. I'd like to get each of your thoughts uh, on the path forward. Um, it seems that the current efforts to push the electrification of new homes and potentially existing homes comes with a set of costs that could outweigh any benefits, and I think you all pretty much laid that out. Ted, what do you see as the next steps with regards to this program and what we're trying to accomplish to address housing affordability and our state's existing greenhouse gas emission reduction goals? Uh, That's a great question. I think the next step on the latter part of your question, obviously, is we will seat this new energy code board and we'll have some hopefully very vigorous discussions about what we're talking about today. What is the trade-off between some modicum of, of more efficiency versus most likely greater cost? And what does that do to affordability? But if you're going to fix the affordability um, what we've talked about, right? It, it's simple supply and demand. It, it's a supply demand equation. You can diagram it pretty easily. Um, until we build more units um, to meet demand, we will not truly bring down the cost. And in t- really, one of the ways that, <laughs> if I'm being frank with with policymakers, and they ask me, "What do you need to do?" If you've got that wand, Ted, wave it. What is it? It's get out of the way of the experts and allow them to build. and do what they do best, and that's build homes. So have land use policies and zoning policies that actually encourage home ownership or encourage the production, sorry, of new housing units that then promotes home ownership or or really just housing. And that, to me, is, is the best way to do it. Staff up, make sure that you have the ability to review plans in a timely manner, that you have the ability to inspect projects in a timely manner. Do not keep those stuck in the pipeline. Um, allow us to do what we do best. Evelyn, same question to you. Well, I agree with everything Ted mentioned. I think it's really important that we take a measured approach to this, uh, particularly when we have such an undersupply of housing right now. So I don't think it's really the time to add your wish list of you know green energy targets on top of housing when people can't afford to buy a home um, because we're just not building enough. So uh, part of the recommendations in my report deal with the Energy Code Board and what they should be looking at. Um, I'd I'd like them to prioritize affordability. Uh, We've seen states like Florida, when they were implementing a statewide building code, prioritize affordability and say, well, we're going to, that's going to be the number one thing that we need to do when we're looking at what materials to use and, and, and how we do it. But, um, you know, I I don't know if we've, if we'll be able to do that here. One of the other recommendations that I mentioned was that, you know, the biggest stakeholders that are involved in this are not on the energy code board, and those are the homeowners. And so if we can have an open process that is transparent and allows people to comment on what we will be implementing in the state, I think that would be beneficial. And so that entails the, you know, the regular homeowner here in Colorado learning about this and understanding how this will impact them. Tim, I will follow up to all of that. We have become an unaffordable state. There's no doubt about it. We have 90 employees that struggle to find housing 
they're well-paid employees. It's sad because Colorado used to be an affordable state and we're no longer going there. And it's compounded by cities imposing affordability requirements like Denver recently did, which is only making things less affordable. Everywhere affordability requirements have been imposed, it's actually increased housing. Explain that affordability requirement. So Denver just passed their new drawn a blank on the what they called it, but it's their housing policy that requires all new developments of I think it's twelve units or more to have somewhere between twelve and sixteen percent affordable units set aside for ninety nine years at sixty percent of the area median income. And if you think about most market rate rents are somewhere between a hundred and hundred and twenty percent of merit median income. So you're talking about reducing market rents by a half on 16% of the units that you're building, which is only going to make the other units absorb the cost. And as you said earlier in this podcast, Earl, you, the employer, is ultimately going to pay for it because we got to pay more to our employees. But zoning has definitely gotten tighter in just about every jurisdiction where they're limiting density, limiting height, squeezing out any sort of multifamily development. Nobody wants it in their backyard. Multifamily developments do reduce traffic. I mean, it's proven that, that it does. And, and when people live in multifamily units, they're consuming less energy, even less water for that matter, because they don't have yards uh, to water. So I, I think, you know, it is an all of the above. We got to embrace multifamily housing as one solution for both ends of the spectrum. The empty nesters that are selling their homes to the next generation of people moving in and and to first time home buyers or, or renters. So we need we need to be doing it all. It's a huge task. Uh, the next big thing we're going to see, you know, this is, we're talking about energy here, the electrification and the added cost. To homes, the forcing upon developers to do affordable affordability a certain set aside. Next, what is coming is WUI, which is Wildland Urban Interface, which is basically fire protecting your home from wildland fires. California is implementing it, and I, I, I assume Jefferson County uh, implemented it last year. And you know that's going to add another probably ten to forty thousand, depending where the home is built of additional costs. So, you know, something has to give here with with increased labor, increased material cost, and increased land and increased development requirements. So we need to really partner with the, and, and a lot of this starts down at the local level, at the city council meetings, and, and educating them on what it really costs to develop and build and how they can partner in the solutions. Thank you. To all three of you, um, I hope that the policymakers and community leaders will take note of your thoughts and recommendations. It's especially important now that policymakers pursue effective strategies in order to prevent allowing these problems to compound. I think they've already started to compound, from what I can tell. For more information and to read Evelyn's full report, please visit our website, www.commonsenseinstitutecode.org. Any final words? Uh, I know we've kind of gone along here, but any final, you know, few words you'd like to make? Comments? I'll, I'll make I'll make one point on the back to the efficiency, and what's 
largely left or a lot of folks don't either want to realize or just fail to realize is is a home built to the 2018 energy efficiency codes or or the IECC, the International Energy Conservation Code, are so much more efficient now. Actually, really, homes built after 2010 are so much more efficient than homes built before 10. So I don't want to get into a whole other discussion between retrofitting and the fallacy of saying we're going to fix this by only sticking it to new builds when the, when the problem is the built environment already exists if you're going to look at that as a, as a CO2-reducing strategy. But people need to understand that, that the homes built today, whether you're built in 2021, 2018, 2015, 2012, are much greater in efficiency than the homes that are much, much older. So let's take that into account. Let's take let's not hide the, the progress that we make at reducing CO2. And we've done it. I think you guys were having a conversation before we started, the reductions we've made um, with the grid and the built environment and everywhere. Um, so let's let's you know cherish that or applaud that and make sure that that's being that's we're mindful of it when we're creating you know these new policy solutions or policy problems. Well, I'll just add that you know we don't have to be out in the wilderness on a lot of these things. That there are other states that we could look to that have been doing this, and you know, for example, California is one of these states that has a stringent energy code and. And they've been, you know, dealing with blackouts and things like that. And, you know, one of the things I uncovered in my research is that homeowners started buying these generator, backup genera- generators that are diesel powered. And so what you're actually doing is creating more greenhouse gas emissions. So I think when we re- look at it and the totality of the situation, we need to take those things into account. And, you know, and Tim brought up EV rebates um, you know, there was a Congressional Budget Office analysis that looked at that that said 90% of those rebates went to people in the upper income level, so people who are making over 120000 a year. And so, you know, we need if, – if our goals are to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to help people who are, you know, living with these uh, carbon dioxide emissions in their home, we need to really take a good look at how we address that and there are examples of how we could do that um, in a better way. Please, Tim. Yeah, thank you, Earl. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed being here today. And, you know, Ted, I'm glad you hit on that point about incremental gains. We are, our homes built today are so energy efficient. And the enormous costs we're going to spend to go to full electrification isn't going to justify the incremental gain that we're going to get in reducing CO2. So let's let's have a balanced approach to this. Let's think through the full consequences, first, second, third tier consequences before we jump off a bridge without a parachute. Well, it seems to me if we're going to have a balanced approach, we've got experts around the table that are trying to inform all of us in the public. Hey, get out there, get engaged, get informed, talk to your representative and make certain they understand what it is that uh, could be occurring and that there are alternatives and uh, getting you know, get out there and and, uh, try to do something about it with your elected representatives. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere. 
or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.